and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. Where are you? I'm in Connecticut at my mom's house. Where are you? I am in Cambridge, the UK. That sounds fun. The original Cambridge. The original Cambridge. And what are we reading this week, Claire? Uh, we're reading Chapter 7, Infinite Possibilities. Um, and I think it's actually our first remote one. So it's quite exciting. Um, what did you think of the chapter overall? I liked it. I think it's an interesting so <laughs> you know um no, it's, it's a good chapter i mean it it, it starts you know the, the way the book is moved we started with some really abstract stuff and the farther chapters we've gone into we really started diving into actual information and helping people to move into a poly lifestyle or to examine it and think about it it reminded me a lot of chapter four uh, in that Chapter four, Slut Styles, which we cover in episode four, Slut Styles, um, goes through like kind of a, a canon or like a, categor- a categorization, I guess, of different ways in which sexual subcultures um, through history have been operating. And this chapter, I think, kind of does a similar thing in its categorization, which is great, but it also, I think, means that some things are left out. And I guess that's what we're going to explore today. But first, maybe we should just mention that they actually in this edition of the book, they changed this chapter. Did you know that? No, I didn't, because I never looked at... You had the other version of the book, but I never looked at the second version, the second edition. Well, since the first edition of the book, this was a guide to infinite sexual possibilities. And in this um, 20th century edition, they changed that to include non-sexual relationships. There are, this chapter not only talks about the ways in which you can romantically or intimately relate to people, but also domestically, emotionally, and how many different ways there are to do that. In essence, I think to sum up the whole chapter in one sentence is that there is as many ways of doing non-monogamy and polyamory as there are people doing it. Um, but they do give a really good attempt to try and categorize some of the ways to think about it for movies. Yeah. I think before we dive into them, just to you know, add to what you're saying. There's a, a line that I have underlined here that sluthood lives in the brain, not between the legs, which I think is part of their reworking of, you know, rethinking of this chapter and things that we talked about in some of the earlier chapters about what love means and what intimacy means and what sex means and, you know, relooking at that and breaking out of the normal cultural ideas about those things and saying that there are a lot of ways to do polyamory just as there are a lot of ways to do different relationships. And if you broaden your definition of relationships, all of a sudden, you know, polyamory and different relationship styles can mean a lot of different things. And there's infinite possibilities. So they start by uh, outlining asexual and celibate slothood. Um, they, They define asexual as someone who does not experience sexual attraction. Um, to further read from the glossary, the asexual community, which is estimated to be at least 1% of people in the United States, has built an extensive vocabulary for all the flavors and types of asexuality. 
If you do a web search on asexual, you'll find plenty of information about this seldom discussed orientation. So, of course, I did do the web search. <laughs> um, and I think where they're getting this 1% of the population being asexual is actually going way back to Kinsey, who we spoke about in the first episode. Right, so he did this um, this self report style of interviewing, um, and I guess listeners can go back to that episode to listen to that. But there is a category which is which he classifies as X, uh, where people self report that they don't have any sexual um, sexual attraction at all. Uh, and I think that's where they're getting the one percent from. Um, I mean, I know that, I mean, relatively, that's certainly the biggest data source on these issues still that I know of. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is a lot more, um, I think, like research going on about asexuality now, especially as it has moved from being, uh, so in the 70s, it's a very disturbing period of, of sexual psychology, <laughs> believed that asexuality was a symptom of some kind of deficit or mental illness and now that that has been debunked uh rightly so um it's uh it seems to be talking about like enduring sexual non-attraction or non-sexual enduring periods where the subject is not reporting sexual attraction not just uh maybe through like periods of uh trauma or growth or um you know instances where a person is not feeling sexual attraction it's actually like a uh, being moved into the sexual orientation category. So just from looking at the research, I can see this like new bloom um, of of stuff on this, which is nice. Yeah. Um, they also, I mean, they also make the point here of making that distinction of the difference between asexuality, which is a a long term thing, versus celibacy, like you were saying, like a, a choice to abstain for, for some period of time that is intentional, um, whether it's a short-term or a long-term or what the reasons are behind it, um, and differentiating that from um, being asexual and that just being a part of who you are and that being an orientation or being a, a, you know, some part biological, probably. Yeah, but they, also give, they give a nod towards involuntary celibates, which... Um, I guess we can put a link in about, about what that community is because I really don't want to talk about it because... Um, I don't even want to put a link in because having stumbled onto that subreddit by accident, it's horrendous and it makes me angry. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting um, online community in the beginning because it was actually started by a woman um, and then now has sort of morphed into this strange part of, oh, right, men, right, activism thing. So uh, we can put it in the podcast that goes over the history of it. But... It, Basically, celibacy seems to be linked to choice, as we said. Asexuality seems to be linked towards more of an orientation, a lasting and enduring um, self-definition of not having any orientation or any attraction. And just before we move off of it, I found communities in the USA, conferences. Uh, there's a flag, black, white, and purple, which is for the asexual part of the flag. And the awareness week is in the latter part of the month of October. And on celibacy, most of the text I can find, most of the supporting research uh, speaks about celibacy specifically in regards to religious celibacy. But obviously there is a number of reasons why somebody might choose celibacy, 
including being geographically isolated, um, finding uh, finding sexual uh, intimacy maybe traumatic if they're, if they're coming out of something that's that's asking them to kind of take a step, asking themselves to take a step back from from sexual contact, um, and other people through illness, disability, and incarceration kind of have celibacy maybe involuntarily. I like the way that they end this, since we're sort of moving through it, where they talk about um, the line is, we do not see celibate slut or asexual slut as in any way a contradiction in terms, which goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, like just because you're not being physically intimate with somebody doesn't mean you can't have a rich and intimate relationship, just with different metrics than what society might normally think are there. I mean, they talk about in their you know, there are people who are generally identified as asexual, but may participate in some things with a partner for that partner because of the compassion, or they may do other things that are, are different forms of intimacy um, in order to meet those needs in different ways. They just express that and feel that differently. So I, I think it's a, it's a good way to point out, it ties back into rethinking how we, we look relationships and culture. And with that, we could move on to the next category they talk about, platonic relationships or friendships, you know, rethinking how we look at friendships as being so vastly different. Um, there's a line, I don't have a relationship, just all these friends. Um, and one thing I think about with that is when I start talking to people about polyamory, or if I'm introducing people to it, one of the comparisons I use is, well, don't you have more than one friend? No. Don't you have a I have best one friend? single friend. This is how many friends <laughs> And I can only true. have one best friend because I am five. Right. But realistically, though, I mean, people manage to juggle and maintain and support multiple relationships throughout their lives. And some people may only want to have one romantic relationship, but clearly people can manage multiple relationships throughout their lives. And I think this is giving a nod to that and that a lot of people have those skills already. Um, they point out even, you know, some people may have a best friend who's closer than their partner. Yeah, and I think, like, that, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. Like, some people, their best friend is the person that's known in the longest, knows all of their, like, their little secrets, knows, knows all the things that make them feel a little bit ashamed and all their, like, embarrassing nights out. Like, those, those might well be, like, I think, if I think about this, the friends that I have, uh, I guess we'll move on to, like, why my friends is not... I think if you're listening to this, you probably definitely have a friend or two or three. Know you maybe better than the person that you're currently dating, especially if you're in like early 20s, um, which demographically our listeners are. Um, you haven't had a chance to like have a 30-year marriage when that person becomes your best friend, right? But you will already have people that have known you for most of your life. Why, why is that in society? Like not as important as a romantic relationship like why is that not the thing that we celebrate it shouldn't be i think it's it's again in reality it's just sort of cultural pressure that says that those things are different where if you take a step back and you realize that like friendship and intimacy is so many different things you can use all these skills you've used for years to have a best friend and another friend and manage friendships to and broaden it to including partners and 
other types of relationships, family relationships and personal relationships and business relationships. Um, but, you know, I, I think that not including friendships as part of your relationship dynamic and how you think about that is a disservice to you and your friends. Oh, you know, I've just thought about as well, you know, how people talk about in like, I'm talking about like monoculture, they talk about being friend zoned, like the worst thing in the world. And I guess that just kind of like, they don't mention this in the book, but for me that that is a representation of a model of relationships that are more important and less important. And it's like, why would you ever want to be in a friend zone when you could be getting fucked? And maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you should be like, why would I just want to be having sex if I could also be someone's friend and actually like, like them? <laughs> which I guess I've kind of done the gun because the next thing you want to talk about was friendly sex, which they give a lot more space to than friendships. <laughs> I mean, but that's fair because this is, I mean, we are still the, the main sort of current through this book is talking about intimate relationships and romantic relationships. So spending more time on sex stuff. But um, so the next time they talk about friendly sex, which people have different relationships with. Um, and it's something that some people struggle with and some people are very good at. But <laughs> no one could see that, but I just smiled very strong. <laughs> but what they talk about here actually is not like how to accomplish this, but like what are the challenges of, of having sort of friendly, casual sex with people, short term or long term? Um, and part of the problem with that that people run into is sort of the attachment and the significance that sex has in so many things. Just like you were saying before about why is the friend zone a bad thing? Having a strong friendship without sex is somehow a bad thing. Having just sex without friendship can sometimes be construed as a bad thing. But then it's also weirdly like culturally a bad thing to fuck your friends. Like everyone's like, oh, if you do that, inevitably the friendship's over. Like once you introduce sex into the picture, that person can never see you again as just a friend, which is really weird. I like way of thinking about it in my opinion and my experience. So I agree. I mean, I think there's this underlying belief that if you introduce sex into a friendship, it's going to change the friendship, which it can or it cannot. But why would that be bad? Like, why would it be bad to introduce? Like this, I think was, was a part of this chapter that I struggle the most with because I, I've, been in situations where, where like why would you want to have sex with someone that wasn't a friend someone that didn't you know respect you and know you and you didn't feel comfortable with and in what way could it ever be bad to engage physically with letting yourself be with somebody i mean i've i've had sex with so many of my friends at this point i'm like which ones haven't i slept with <laughs> um and i gotta say like from experience even it's usually fine but even in the situations where it has been difficult because you're friends you can navigate yourself out of it so i've been in a situation before where i sat with a friend and afterwards they voiced that it was strange because usually i would be the person they would speak to about that but now i'm also the subject of the thing that they want to discuss but we got out of it because we're friends first and foremost so it was like, okay, well, you're not happy being in that, in that sexual space, but we're going to navigate a way back out of that. And we managed to do that well. And we remained, like, they still remain one of my best friends. So it, this, this was just so foreign to my experience that I, I couldn't really understand it. But I think that's different coming, I mean, that makes total sense to me. I think probably it's very easy for us to wrap our heads around given our 
life choices and, and how we structure our relationships. But one thing it does say here, the, the line that, that makes me think of is, the only, it, it's sort of an offshoot of, they say the only acceptable reason to have sex is to lead to monogamous marriage-like relationships. And so that struggle with balancing that is from this pressure that if you're gonna have sex, like then you're gonna do this and then you're gonna do this and that there, there isn't another reason, right? Whereas they point out, and I strongly agree that friendship is an excellent reason to have sex. As is, I mean, any other choice they make if you want to have sex. But oh, the problem is like, all that pressure. So here they're saying, if I'm right, as you've explained it, that the reason why that this is hard for other people to maybe get their heads around is because it is challenging the monoculture myth of sex leads to monogamous romantic relationship. And only that is a valid reason to have sex. Yes. That was a very succinct way of explaining what I said. Thank you. So just have a string of one eye stand going. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, the only thing I, that I want to add in here, and then we could move on, because um, I think we talked about this pretty well, but they, they make a point here, nothing increases intimacy better than shared vulnerabilities, and that can feel scary. And sex of any kind, if it's casual or whatever, is a shared vulnerability. And... So if you have a friend, you can, the other thing you can be worried about, and I, I get this, is that you, you know, that by opening yourself up in that way with a friend, it could have a negative impact on the friendship by opening yourself up in a way that you won't be able to handle. But I think this is where communication and friendship and being conscious of that can, can make that manageable. And it's not for everybody. And some people may have, may not be able to do that and, and balance those things, but that shouldn't mean that that it's a bad thing to do that if you feel comfortable with it and your friend feels comfortable with it. Um, we certainly shouldn't judge them. Yeah, you certainly should not. Everybody should do what they want as long as it's... They say no potential. Okay, so they now <laughs> introduce um, one of the newer terms in what they call the polylexicon. Um, they call it... Well, they don't call it... They're, they're talking about relationship anarchy. This is the first time we're actually, we've moved from just general relationships to things that are more specific to polyculture. I mean, it's super new. Relationship anarchy as a phrase was only introduced in like 2006, 2010. Um, yeah, I found it in a, the very first like mention of it is kind of in a political poet, poetry thesis, which in my opinion is how all political theses should be in the form of poetry. Um, and then it's and then it's used again at OpenCon in 2010, and it basically seems to be a love philosophy, but also a way of structuring bonds logistically, and also some kind of like political philosophy. And I, uh, from what I can tell from the roots of it, it's coming from a sort of pretty anarchisty Deleuzean deconstruction movement, uh, where basically you you take away everything that's inside the box and you try and think it's outside the box as possible. So, so let me try and break that down a bit more. This isn't just about avoiding hierarchies because we are going to talk about hierarchies later in the chapter, but it's actually about minimizing any kind of labeling whatsoever. It's refusing to engage in like, well, you're a friend and you're a lover and you're my partner and you're my boyfriend. It's almost an inversion of that. 
it comes from, I think, this idea that you don't have many lovers. You have many loves, and that love is constantly fluid and constantly changing. Um, so they then say that relationship anarchists tend to prefer to minimize agreements and other promises regarding sexual or romantic behavior and values free no above commitment. So that they give a very short introduction to this, but I have to say, like, I felt like some things are missing. I identify somewhat with the relationship anarchy model in that I don't tend to like labels. I don't tend to take on uh, elaborate agreements of what I can and can't do with different people. Um, but what I don't like from this, the way that they phrase this is that relationship anarchist seems to be like it has to happen in all area of the lives because it's an ideal. It's an ideal driven way of thinking about consensual nominogamy but that's like even though right now i don't want to put labels on anything doesn't mean that i don't maybe in the future require some labels for like logistical purposes let's say it doesn't have to be a lifelong commitment to relationship anarchy but i do think it has it has value in being in the lexicon but i don't think that, that they necessarily do it justice on the history of why it's there and quite how um, radical it was when it was introduced and I also don't think that they do a good enough job of differentiating relationship anarchy from other types of like personal anarchy that the person might have. Yeah, it does. I mean, it is a very short section, though I do think, I mean, they could give more, but in my mind, part of the problem with that is relationship anarchy is like you said, sort of breaking away from any sort of labeling and, and really breaking out of all of the cultural norms around relationships and, you know, really attacking it independently, sort of in my understanding of it. And I, I identify with some parts of it, other parts, not as much. Um, and I appreciate some of it as a thought exercise, even the parts that I don't identify with. Um, and it's helpful to think about, but I, I think it would be hard for them because relationship anarchy, it, it's part of that fluidness and for everybody can approach it differently. The way that you approach some of those things might be different than somebody who really wants to be completely separate in their own way, really wants to be independent compared to, you know, people can take different parts of this. And I think part of being a relationship anarchist, being a relationship anarchist is about the freedom to break, to, to not be held to any of those cultural things that you don't identify with, but not that you have to or don't have to, or that it can change or not change. And it's more about doing what you want versus following any preset script on these things. But let's move on, maybe, because we could probably dive down that rabbit hole for a whole episode. Yeah, I just feel like they don't get into the anarchy enough. <laughs> you know, like this, this way of thinking is kind of like completely revolutionary. It's not just being like, hey, maybe fuck some friends. It's being like, what is friends? Go back to the drawing board on that. Let's re let's rescript the whole thing. Let's get rid of all kind of like the labels. It's, it's, it's more radical than this. Than, than this uh, introduction is making out to be. Um, but I guess, you know, Darcy and Ethan were, were somewhat constrained by the fact they can only write a 300-page novel book. Yes. We can find some some reading on it and do a whole, Bonus episode. A whole episode that's not related to anarchy and the history. Okay. So you're not related to anarchists, but you might be single. Yeah, living single. And here they're talking about being single either by choice or by situation, where you can be 
polyamorous and still not dating anybody for one of any number of reasons. Um, you know, they point out that you, you being single can be a really good way to really build your relationship with yourself and get to, you know, do some self-examination and self-growth because it can be harder to give yourself space for self-growth. If you're putting a lot of energy into supporting somebody else or energy towards growing a relationship with somebody else, you know, this idea that like taking time for yourself can be really important. If you don't have a strong relationship with yourself, how can you have a strong relationship with somebody else? A hundred percent. They also talk about one of the problems with the, one of the challenges of being single in the monogamous culture, monogamy centrist culture, is that when you're single, like you're, you're just, you know, the mission is still to find that one person. They talk about here about the, the one night stands as a sex audition to like determine if that's a long-term partner. Like this whole, there's this whole thing, right? Like you, you go on a dating site and you meet somebody, you have a drink, maybe you, you go out again and then you like bring them home. And then you basically have to make this judgment call. Like, am I going to put energy into this? Yeah. And then, you know, the person leaves their headshot with their sex CV on the back and they sit in their director's chair and be like, we'll call you because it's an audition. <laughs> I mean, I would say some of this, I mean, even that is a little bit, dated now if I think about what dating looks like even from people who I know are monogamous here um, and using dating apps and stuff where I think now in our generation especially like there is a a little bit more when I've talked to people who are not necessarily poly that I'm trying like meeting online but there is a little bit more expectation now that you know people are dating multiple people at once to not just like not a single audition but there's still that expectation that at some point one person is going to get, you know, make the cutoff and then you're monogamous again. There's a little bit more flexibility on the fact that you can be dating multiple people at the, as they would call it, early stages. You know, if we use our little escalator, ding, ding. Mm, yeah, the relationship um, escalator. The relationship escalator. We, um, we are not going to have time to get into that, but we'll put a link about what the relationship escalator looks like. Sorry, I've gotten a little sidetracked. It's okay. No, I, th- I don't think it's a um, sidetrack. I think it's like really important to highlight how different being single might look in a non-monogamous centric culture versus what it looks like in a monogamous centric culture. And I think one of the, the phrases that they don't use in this, but would be probably helpful is solo poly, which is a relatively new sort of label, if you like, where someone is like, I'm single and polyamorous, which means that at no point am I going to be inevitably in some sort of didactic long-term relationship. It's, it's, um, it's like, I'm, I'm in a relationship myself, as you said, and I might have independent relationships that may be siloed or they might meet each other. Um, I think that they probably could have used solo poly here instead of living single to make that a clearer distinction. Because if you're living single in a monogamous culture, you've essentially failed at the thing that the culture tells you you should be doing. But if you're solo poly, by using that term, you can kind of subvert that expectation for yourself and, and also for people that you're meeting. Yeah. And I think there's also this, um, if you're single and poly, I think one thing also is, you know, the use of the word single sometimes can mean that you're not dating or not involved. Whereas we're in this context, we're more talking about you're, you're focusing on yourself. You can still date. You can still go out with people. You can still have some forms of relationships, but your focus is yourself. You're not, um, your, your main priority is not to find this relationship and to follow that path. 
and they talk about here too, which is stuff I think we'll get into later on as we dive deeper into how to structure poly relationships. But one of the things with that that's different is if you're monogamous and you're single but dating around, like those are all independent siloed events because of the nature of those relationships. Whereas if you're poly, you have options. You may be dating some people casually or seeing them, but those can overlap because you're being honest about that. Everybody knows what you're doing or not, but you have a, a you have a, a choice in the matter. I think the final part that they, they talk about living single here is important because they actually, I don't think that people take enough time to realize how hard it is to be solo in a world that everything's meant to be duo, right? And they speak specifically here about how if you're a single person, I would say solo poly, but whatever, you need to pay a lot more effort and attention to how you want your sexual, emotional, and social needs met. And that means you need to be more aware of those needs than someone who has like found their person. And then that person not only can meet, meant to meet all those needs, ding, ding, air quotes, <laughs> um, but it, it, they also are going to be aware of them. So like in the mono myth, as it were, you found your person and now this person will just intuitively know your needs. And so you don't really have to do as much work being aware of them. But if you are living solo, if you are living a single life, you you need to, to have that level of cognizance. I think it's a hard, it's like a it's a high level of self awareness that you end up having to have just to function. Um, but I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy to to have that experience of trying to make sure that you, as a person of your own, as an island, are as self sufficient as you can be, and then understanding where you need to get your needs met or what needs those, those will be. Yeah, I agree. I don't have much to add on that. I would basically repeat you. Okay, then let's move on to to some of the other infinite possibilities that they talk about. And I think basically everything after this is no longer about the, the individual. We're now moving into more like uh, possibilities which include more than one person, specifically didactic, which is two people. And the one that they use is monogamish. They They do. Which is a word that I, I know apparently has been around since 2011, Savage, but recently, though I, I like it. I think it's a fun word. It's kind of like poppy. It's like a pop parlance. But I'll read from the glossary um, of like what monogamish is, according to them, is the relationship style practiced by partners who are socially pair bonded, but whose agreements allow some degree of sexual connection outside with outside partners. And Dan Savage uses it specifically to talk about someone who might have within their relationship with two people have like a mutually agreed terms on which a third party could enter the bedroom or that they could go and do something outside of their marital, well, presumed marital bed, right? So I think Dan Savage talks about like having like a celebrity crush. Like if you ever did meet Dan Savage, you have, you you have a free pass to sleep with Dan Savage if he you in yeah. a bar yes the mono hall pass like here you go you get to go go and go and enjoy that one moment but you are still essentially pair bonded monogamously i think the fact that this was introduced so recently and now has become common pop parlance really shows that there was a need for this label to be created yeah i agree because you are still living monogamously 
but you are engaging in non-monogamous practices. And I think that that's, um, was really necessary and is super, super helpful. Like you're dating some monogamish people. I would, I would don't know if that's how they refer to themselves, but like, it's so helpful. You'd be like, well, they're monogamish. And I'm like, got it. I understand. I mean, I, th I think monogamish is a sort of popular way, but it's sort of, in my mind, it's kind of the, it kind of fits with the, the sort of general idea of what an open relationship is of how a lot of people practice such a thing and in, in the way that it's used of you are in a largely monogamish dyadic relationship, but you've relaxed some of those boundaries about what you're comfortable with, you know, that, that there are certain things. But crucially, you haven't done that as a solo person. You haven't done that as, as an entity of one. This is an entity of two. This is a possibility that requires you to have another person already in the, already in the fold, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're leaving behind all of the possibilities now if there's just one person everything from now on is about more than one person involved um and so you make that decision together and i think later on in the book they have a whole chapter on what you might need to ha start having that discussion with inside the circle um and then how to like protect inside the circle with the outside others being optional different in some way maybe like less important or something uh, and again, there's no wrong way to do it as long as it's safe, sane, and consensual, as long as it's an intentional discussion with, with the inside fault. I agree. I think this is, and we'll dive into that later, but this is how maybe a lot of people dip their toes and start to feel out being polyamorous. Oh, for sure. I kind of wish that there was like a more formalized database <laughs> on the amount of people that start monogamish and then engage in more sort of more formal i guess that's not the right word but more more formalized methods of non-monogamy i think that would be really interesting but it doesn't exist maybe right one now. day but moving from that it's still on this topic of different you know no longer solo things but you know in partnerships is actually the next thing we talk about is partnerships and this is broader I and mean, this starts talking about different ways to have multiple forms, different forms of open or multiple relationships. The first one they talk about is serial monogamy, which we've talked about before, which is that you're always technically monogamous. You're only dating one person at a time, but you're constantly dating one person. And so you're sort of, it's this idea that you like, as you're dating somebody, you almost line up the next person. And as soon as one thing ends the other, and I kind of appreciate that they, they lump that into not being exactly monogamous because it kind of isn't. If you follow the bounds of what monogamy is and having that single relationship, if you are starting to pursue somebody else while you're in that one relationship, it goes back to this idea, like just because you're not having sex with them, it's not a relationship. But if you break out of that and you start to think about it from an emotional standpoint, I would argue that you are in multiple relationships already, that if you're emotionally pursuing somebody to start dating when you break up with somebody that that is. Um, so they talk about that. They also talk about my favorite technical term, non-consensual non-monogamy, which most of us would call cheating. And they, you know, those are both things that people can do, but the authors point out, and I agree that you will feel freer and safer and better overall if you're open and honest instead of these things, which can be not open and honest. 
not ethical. And then we dive into different types of uh, open relationships and how to like how to start that. They talk about open relationships and that they can vary a lot, just like any a single relationship can can as you're as you're opening up and starting to introduce more people, there are just more and more ways to structure that depending on the people involved. Are there infinite possibilities? Yes. I see what you did there. Um, you know, they talk about how relationships can vary based on distance or emotional and physical involvement between the different people involved and the separation. But I think the real point is as as you're already in a partnership and building partnerships, um, there's a lot of different ways to do it and to structure that. And whether you're starting from two or three or whatever, that you can figure out how to do that. And there's many ways to do it as long as it works for everybody involved. Um, and those will change over time as you grow and your partners grow. Okay, so they then talk about um, hierarchical terminology, which might be a situation in which someone talk about um, their different partnerships that they're in as being primary, secondary, tertiary, um, all of which I hate. <laughs> I really, uh, I really think it's. I, I'm very personally concerned with the idea of making like a one, two, three ABC out of different relationships. Um, although I can see the value in alternative. Uh, labeling so for example weekend partner nesting partner life partner um and this is something that i come across a lot on actually how helpful this is and i've given it a lot of thought and this is this is basically what i have come to is that i don't like the labels i don't like the idea of making a hierarchy out of your relationship i personally feel very uncomfortable with the idea that you make someone your primary and then someone else your secondary and i think this is why because then you're saying it's okay to do this with person A, and, but not with person B, because this relationship is primary and this relationship is secondary, for example. And I guess just personally, I, I don't uh, feel comfortable with that. But what I do feel comfortable with, which is a difference in the literature, is when you use these labels prescriptively. So, for example, you say, I do this with partner with my partner therefore they are my nesting partner like i'm going to use this term to talk about my nesting partner because that's the person i live with whereas this is my life partner because it is my longest relationship neither of those are necessary like hierarchically above the other so it's used as a prescriptor that's bad it's used as a descriptor that's super helpful i can see the value in that logistics but obviously there are people that use it prescriptively. And I think it helps if you're in partnerships and you really require clear boundaries following like a discussion of what you can and can't do. Like, can you not stay over that person's house because I am your primary? I hear that a lot. And I, I understand why that might come about personally. I think the more viable way of using these, these labels, if you like, is to to describe the relationship that is naturally coming about between you and other people. So this is the person I live with, therefore they are my nesting partner. This is my life partner. I guess I'm repeating myself. <laughs> um, but as I say, this, this terminology is pervasive and um, they also express concerns about how it's a system that inherently seems to rank the importance of people in your life. 
but it's important that it's in there because it's such common parlance in the poly community. So I'm glad they put it in. Um, I think that they could have added the information about prescriptive and descriptive because I think that is making it clear um, what what the value of this could be, but also maybe some of the dangers. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't like the use of them to sort of control people. And I think that's how a lot of it goes is to sort of rank importance or to, to especially with primariness, it's to give somebody more control in a relationship. It's sort of giving power in the relationship to the partner and the like different partners at different ways and ranking them. It's ranking importance of relationships, which is not good because relationships are important in different ways for different reasons. Yeah, and like for example, you and I have this podcast um, which I maybe which I don't have with another partner, but with that partner, I might have a kid, or this partner, I might have a house, or you have different. And so, obviously, when it comes to things like distribution of the podcast, you are, if you like, primary for that project. When it comes to things like co-parenting, my co-parent relationship is primary for that element of my life. Yeah, they even make that example in the book. Like Jenna says. E is my life partner and Dossie is my co-author. So if I'm buying a house, E's the most important. But if I'm writing a book, Dossie is definitely more important. And that's really, you know, I, I agree with you. At terms like nesting partner or life partner or things like that that are just, it comes back to something we talked about a while ago, like labels are all what you make of them. So if you're using them to be descriptive and to help explain your situation, that's good. And that can be helpful for people to understand what may be very complicated webs of relationships but using it to limit each other or control your partnerships, not so much. So moving on from that, from just partnerships, now they actually jump into more than two, which is talking about um, multi-relationships. And I think the way that I often see this most is either triadic relationships, so a relationship that is a, a three-way relationship. Yeah, can I just say, like, I am so sick of the triadic saturation when it comes to poly visibility like to de-jog in that sentence i'm like personally i'm like so over this stereotypical view like picture of polyamory as being like a man and two women or a woman and two men it's yeah i just i i know i know that a lot of people find themselves in triads i've personally never been in one i've never heard the term trisexual which is one of the things they meant to they mention here um just realized they took this sub this subheading more than two from uh the book more than two by um eve um Rickett and franklin Vo. and at the moment i believe franklin Vo is in somewhat of a controversy so we should maybe just state that they are using the same subtitle for this section but i don't know that that has anything to do with the book and we also will not be going into any of that controversy in this episode because it's not relevant to the writings of, of um, Dossie or Janet. So we'll leave that for another time. And I guess the point of this one is, you know, you can structure polyamory as each person having, you have many independent relationships, or it can be a, a multi-person relationship, and that's another option and then there's a lot of different challenges and things that go into that but that's a totally viable option if that works for everybody involved so they then talk about um public sex but i also want to talk about group sex in this which is basically i kind of read this and thought swingers because they mentioned swinging so often um 
but it's basically any possibility where sex outside the primary relationship can be defined by the specific environment in which it happens. So it's basically outside of a twosome or singly, uh, where you go to a party and you meet other people and you engage in intimate practices with those people. Um, I don't really have a lot to add to this. I think that it's, it's if you're listening to the podcast or, um, or are already practicing polyamory or as a new person, this is probably what, one of the first things you think about when you think about being non-monogamous is you think about it in a sexual context and you think about it as like a threesome or an orgy or a swinging party or whatever. And I'm glad that they have put this in here because that makes it, I mean, it's relevant. But I kind of just want to point out, this is one very short section in this chapter where there are infinite possibilities. So even though this is one way that you can experience non-monogamy in like a purely sexual, physical space, it is by like so far away from being the only way to do that. I kind of think about this as the antithesis of the first grouping that they outlined, the asexual slash celibate because that was expressly taking it away from the sexual physical sphere. And this is expressly setting it within the sexual physical sphere. But I don't really have much else to, to uh, add to that. I think it's, they mentioned this film Short Bus, which I've never seen. Have you, have you ever seen Short Bus? No, I haven't seen it either. Um, I'll have to look for it when we're doing, we'll link to it. And then let's move on to the last one, which I, I like, um, is Chosen Family. And this is talking about, you know, poly relationships more broadly and not now necessarily all in relationships, but they talk about a circle um, or constellation of people who are all interconnected through non-monogamous polyamorous relationships. The term that I know we use when talking about this kind of stuff is polycule. Okay, we only started using that after the first episode because now I can't really stop using it. Before that, I would use pod. Oh, you, that's true. You did use pod, but I discovered polycule on Reddit mostly because they print. They people would make these really cool constellation patterns. I mean, I like the word constellation too because that makes us all like stars. But you know, talking about like as you grow and as you're dating, you you have these connections, and not for everybody, but you you have this whole extended family now through your, your relationships, which is really cool. And depending on how you structure that, that might have overlap and that might mean people involved and you could have all your partners over for Sunday brunch, if that's what you're all doing or you might not, but you still have this big support group in a different way with these, these strong relationships. And I think that's one of the awesome things about being poly. You have this whole network of people who love and support you and through you, other people and each other. Um, and you can see that these can grow huge. If you peruse the poly subreddit and you see one of these, I mean, they can have like 30, 40 people all interconnected with the web. And it's so cool. You and poly subreddit. There's lots of good things on there. <laughs> Um, and they also talk in a section about if you are going to have circles or chosen families that um, have a, a fluid moving between them, whether that is oral, penetrative, sexual activities or, or whatever, um, sometimes using the term circle and people have closed and also open circles uh, as strategies for for safe sex. Those are sex strategies, uh, which is definitely something that we need to talk about more. I'm, I'm sure we will. <laughs> But having these closed circles, um, 
of, uh, of like testing in and out of that circle, fluid bonding, all of these buzzwords. And they, they kind of put that all under chosen family because I guess we're using this to talk about any situation in which you are either monogamously or non-monogamously engaged with, uh, with uh, enough people to, to constitute a network of support, a kinship network, if you like. Um, because again, you might want to include your monogamous long-term partner, but also their um, like best friend, because that best friend is so important for their emotional health. Um, so the chosen family, I'm just saying it can be sexual, but it can also be non-sexual, and both of those have things to add to the conversation about non-monogamy. Have you ever heard of polyfidelity? Because they put that in here, and I literally don't know what that is. No. Let me look it up. Polyfidelity is a subset of polyamory in which more than two people, possibly two or more couples, form a sexually exclusive group. It's sometimes used as a safer sex strategy. I have never heard of it. I That's not what I would have assumed it was. But there we go. I'd just like to read the, the last line of this chapter, which I think we've said before, but I think it's a nice way to end most of the chapter on which is there's no the last yeah i'll read this the last two we think that relationship structures should be designed to fit the people in them rather than people chosen to fit some abstract ideal of the perfect relationship there's no right or wrong way to do this as long as everyone's having fun and getting their needs met amen amen so that's kind of how they close out the the core of the chapter so to go over it again, they introduce us to asexuality and celibacy, platonic relationships, friendly sex, relationship anarchy, living single, monogamish partnerships, hierarchies and alternatives, more than two, public sex, and chosen family. Lots and lots of ways. And in each of those, we, we looked at different options. Do you think they've left anything out? Do I think they've left anything out? Yeah, because I think that they, they left out one of the core relationships that I've been in doesn't fit into any of these smoothly. Do you want to know what it is? Yes, I do. So one of the possibilities that I think they, they don't include here is metamorphs. I mean, yeah, I guess they don't talk about it directly. So like a metamorph, for, for those people that don't know, a metamorph is the partner of your partner. So we're already assuming a non, like a either didactic, but definitely not monogamous setting. So let's say that I'm dating Sebastian and Sebastian is dating partner, another partner. My relationship with that partner is termed as a metamorph. And that can be sexual or non-sexual. It can be the beginning of a triad. It can be just, uh, we're just friends. Or I can maybe never even meet that person. So it doesn't necessarily fit into any of the, the possibilities that they have here. Um, I'd say it's maybe somewhere between like, platonic relationship and more than two it fits into this into the chosen family a little bit too because that can be one of those situations i still wish they had spoken about it more because i feel like it's it's one of the most important relationships that you'll find yourself in that isn't your relationship yeah sometimes and i it would have been good i think to have to have that added in here uh, because it presents with very specific um, opportunities, but also very specific like uh, dynamics. And I don't know that they necessarily speak on it 
later in the book. So, but maybe that's what the fourth edition will be for. Be a whole chapter. Okay, so to close out the chapter, they have uh, this sidebar or vignette. Can you say vignette again? Vignette. <laughs> Still sounds like a dressing. Uh, <laughs> it's addressing on the end of the chapter. But I really liked, you know, after they end on there's no right or wrong way to do it, they dive into this vignette in praise of monogamy. And I appreciate that. It kind of in the same way that I appreciate them adding asexuality in there. That, you know, monogamy isn't a choice. That there's, monogamy isn't a choice of either of the authors or either of your hosts. But it's a perfectly valid choice if it's a choice that you're making. I think the problem with monogamy a lot of the time is that people don't choose to be monogamous. That's just, that's just what people do. You just, you be monogamous because that's what culture says. And what they're saying here, there are plenty of people who want to be monogamous. I have a very close friend who I've talked to a lot about this and she is totally open to my polyness, polyamory, but she's just like, I couldn't do that. I don't want to do that. It's, I'm, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. I also have friends who that are married, but you make a very conscious decision about about it, just as long as you're making a decision without the widespread belief that it's the only moral one. Um, and I really liked in this vignette where they say, yes, they give the praise to monogamy and they, they clarify that it is a really, um, really great way of doing a relationship with somebody if it's a choice and if it's intentional. And they also talk about how there are skills from within this book that you can still use but they also make this fun, fun aside where they talk about how it's some sort of odd BDSM contract. <laughs> like you can, you can only do, you can only do this with me. And um, being like sort of vaguely Dom Subby, a little bit, a little bit, you know, your, your kink roots are showing. Janet. <laughs> Janet Hardy. <laughs> um, and they talk about, we talked about this, I think, in Slut Styles, in one of the earlier chapters. There, there are things that polyamorous people can learn from monogamous relationships and people, things that monogamous people can learn from poly relationships. And if everybody's making these choices constantly and we can be open in talking about it, we can all learn and grow from everybody's experiences. And they point out, too, that even if you're polyamorous, like you may shift and be be monogamous or monogamous for some stretch and that these things shift and grow. And when there's no pressure to do one or the other, then your relationships and relationship styles can adapt and change as you adapt and change through life and based on your needs and your situations, as long as that's all a conscious choice with everybody involved. And I think that that's a really nice point. There is no right or wrong way, as long as everybody is happy. And you don't have to do it for life. You can, you know, choose to be monogamous uh with somebody for just the, just the last 10 years of your life because that's how you want to be in your old age or you could choose to be monogamous during a period where you don't have a lot of energy from multiple partners because you're building a career or you know, trying to have a kid or uh, accumulate wealth or something or you might want to be monogamous right at the very beginning of your life um and th all of those are fine so it doesn't have to be lifelong either this praise of monogamy, it kind of comes with a caveat that like, because it's not the only moral choice, it also doesn't have to be the only choice you make at all. You can choose 
to be monogamous now and then later not and then monogamous again and then later long. Yeah, I'm really happy they ended on that as well. And I think the chapter overall does a good job of setting out the multiple ways in which we can relate to other people. I agree. And that, that I realize, is the end of part one. That is indeed. We have finished the whole of part one. Correct. <laughs> and I think we'll just use this opportunity to say we are going to be taking a couple of weeks break at the end of uh, this part one before we start part two, which is called The Practice of Slutthood. Um, and during this time, we want to regroup and get all of our distribution channels in place. So we really want to thank everyone for the support for part one of the ethical slot and look out for a bonus episode that's coming. We have that coming up. That's exciting. Um, and please join us for part two, where we begin to talk about the skills required for non-monogamous, for ethical non-monogamy. All right. All right. Until then. Ciao, I'm done. Bye. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.